Just as we uh, get started this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 24 if you have your Bibles with you. If not, we'll be having this passage up on the screens here in just a few minutes. But I want you to think about different arguments that you've experienced in your life, Uh, things that you've heard, people's defense. Uh, Have you ever been in a time in your life where you have found yourself being accused of something, wrongly accused, or even maybe rightly accused, and you find yourself defensive? You find yourself kind of on your heels thinking backwards, right? Ever have those moments where you feel defensive and what comes out of your mouth is not what you had hoped, right? You either say something aggressively in response or you say something that afterwards you're like, that makes no sense at all, right? And immediately you know that you're defensive. Well, I'm going to have, let's see here. Uh, Zach, why don't you come up for me real fast? And um, let's see, who else do I have that's around? Claire, why don't you come up with me real quick? Aaron, oh, and Summer, sure, come on up if you want. (laughs) Yep. She can come on up if she wants, yeah. I'm okay with that. All right, so what you didn't realize was going to happen when you came up this morning is that you were going to get yourself a Twinkie. Have you ever had a Twinkie before? All right, so that's yours, Claire. All right. Zach, here's your Twinkie. All right. Aaron, this is your Twinkie. All right. Now, do you have any idea what a Twinkie might have to do with defensiveness? Any idea at all? Is there anything that's really good about a Twinkie? Perfect. All right. You came up for the Twinkie, didn't you? Yeah. All right. Perfect. Thanks, Summer. You got it. That's what you came up for. We all come up for Twinkies, right? And so that's the important part, right, is, is that when we look at a Twinkie, a Twinkie looks delicious, And so we all know that a Twinkie looks delicious. Now, what we also know is that when you take a bite of the Twinkie, the first bite is somewhat fulfilling, but the rest of the bite is like, yeah, I don't really probably shouldn't finish this, but I kind of want to finish it, and yet at the same time, my teeth are plastered with this nasty cream and sugary stuff, and you get done, and you're like, oh, it's delicious, and yet you're conflicted, right? Right? It's, there's a confliction that takes place, the Twinkie. Now, what I want you to do real quickly, Claire, go ahead and open up your Twinkie, and I want you to eat this Twinkie just for a minute, okay? Have you ever had a Twinkie before? Okay, okay, take, take a bite, you don't have to eat the whole thing. Hmm. Is it good? Yeah, what, what do you like about that Twinkie? The bread. Bread, Okay. Does that Twinkie have any kind of power? No, are you sure? Right, okay. Um, Any idea what it's made of? Sugar and bread, okay. Does sugar have any kind of effect on you at all? You think so? All right, maybe we should ask your mom and dad. How about you, Zach? When you eat a Twinkie, you want to take a bite of your Twinkie real quick? (laughs) <laughs> Get ready for some 
Pastor. That's right. <laughs> Have you had a Twinkie before, Zach? Yeah, you like Twinkies? What do you like about Twinkies? Uh, they're what? They're, they're good. They're good. Okay, all right. Aaron, go ahead and take a bite of your Twinkie. Huh. You like that Twinkie? Yeah? Have you had a Twinkie before? Well, just now, yeah. Just now. Perfect. <laughs> good. So you might have a new addiction. Okay. <laughs> So the Twinkie, right, you eat it. Now, I want to ask you this, Aaron. If you got into a fight with your brother or your sister and you simply said, "Mm, you know what, the reason that I decided to hit you was because I ate a Twinkie. Do you think that would fly? Why not? Because Twinkie. Because there's no power in the Twinkie, right? And most of us would look at this and say, this is ridiculous, right? Yeah. Well, there's a thing that many of you and some of us who are a little bit older know about, and it's called the Twinkie Defense, right? Have you ever heard the Twinkie Defense? Well, the Twinkie Defense was a person by the name of Dan White, who was a a leader in San Francisco, part of the city council, and he ended up killing two people, or actually killing one person, but hurting others in that process. Now, the defense wasn't that he ate Twinkies. The defense was that Twinkie symbolized a state of being and a state of mind that he was in, that he had become depressed over recent years. And, it, and his attorneys tried to say that because of that, that was the reason that he went and murdered these individuals. The truth was is that it was never about the Twinkie, right? The Twinkie didn't make him do it, right? It's kind of a foolish argument. When we hear about a Twinkie defense, right, most of us are going to be like, that will never work, right? Well, what we're going to talk about this morning is a defense that's based in truth, A defense that actually God has called us to proclaim and stands up. And on the surface, some might look at it and say, that sounds ridiculous. But when we understand what it's rooted in and grounded in, all of a sudden it becomes the hope of our life. And the resurrection and the resurrection defense is not like the Twinkie defense. The Twinkie defense has no merit, no backing, and no proof, but the resurrection does, and it's found in Jesus. So let's go ahead and stand together. Thank you guys for coming up. You guys can finish your Twinkies, and feel free to run around with your, later on at your parents' house, not at mine. Let's go ahead and read this passage together. Starts in Acts 24. It's 27 verses. We're going to stand together as we read this. And this is what it says. It says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about him everything of which we accuse him. 
The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day." But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he, would be, he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away from the, for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the grace of your word. God, this morning we just simply ask you to speak powerfully into each of our hearts. May it be your spirit who comes in power. May you embolden us in the call that you've given us as your children. May we be confronted, God, with your word, and may we respond to your truth as we hear it, without delay. And God, may we rejoice in the resurrection. The resurrection that has occurred through Jesus and the resurrection that is to come. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness towards us. And may it be by you this morning that your word comes forth in power. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Defense of the gospel is grounded in our hope in God through the resurrection. That's the essence of Acts 24. Defense of the gospel is grounded in our hope in God through the resurrection. Defense of the gospel is grounded in our hope in God through the resurrection. It is because of the resurrection of Christ that we have hope in God, that He is a fulfiller of His promises, 
and that we can have a future hope of His promises to come being fulfilled. Now, notice what happens here. If we recall here for a moment, Paul had been imprisoned. He had been taken captive. He was taken captive not because of anything by his own doing, but because of these Jewish leaders who wanted to continue with the traditions. And we're told in this passage, along with chapter 22 and 21 and 23, that Paul was innocent of these charges. And yet, what we looked at last week, or two weeks ago rather, was that God's providential protection over us means that there are going to be times where we don't see that His will is being worked out, even when it is. And so Paul's life was placed in danger. There were those that were seeking to kill him. And he was brought by Lysias, the tribune, the commander of this army, the commander of troops. And he was brought to Caesarea to face the governor, Felix. And this is where we stand, that after five days of being held in Caesarea, being granted a trial, Ananias, the the priest who had falsely accused Paul, comes and he brings with him Tertullus, a man who is well-versed in Roman law. Ananias knew that his own charges wouldn't stick, and so he brings a, a hired gun, so to speak, the best lawyer available. And this lawyer is to present the case on behalf of Ananias, the priest who was seeking to kill Paul, the priest who had slapped Paul in the face. And when Tertullus comes, he immediately confronts Felix. Now, it's important to understand something about Felix. Felix was considered and is considered to be one of the most corrupt leaders. He was not a nice guy. He was a guy that was easily bribed. And listen to this opening statement. He was no friend of the Jews, by the way. But this is how he's greeted. Tertullus begins, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Immediately, they begin with flattery. They try to butter up Felix. Nowhere in Scripture do we find flattery to be a good thing. In fact, it tends to be almost always attached to wolves. Flattery is something we should be cautious about. There's a difference between flattery and encouragement, and we know the difference, right? When it's over the top, it's not heartfelt. We can see that difference and we sense that difference. And Tertullus comes in and he makes these accusations, but he begins by flattering a corrupt ruler. It's self-serving. And notice what he says first about Paul here. 
He says, for we have found this man to be a plague or a pest or a cancer. That's what he's saying. Paul's a cancer. Over the last uh, 15 years, I've coached baseball a number of different seasons. Now, I wouldn't usually say this about kids, but there are times that you have a player on your team that is a cancer. They infect everything. When they're around, the mood of the team changes. The distraction changes. They're disruptive. There's frustration. So he's saying here, Paul is no good. He, he's, a, he's a disruptor. He's contagious. He makes problems worse. He's one and goes on and says, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So they're making these claims. They're saying that, that Paul's a cancer or a plague. That he's a political agitator. Someone who just comes up to stir the pot. He's the leader of a sect or a cult. Cults are never seen as being serving-oriented towards people. Cults are always perceived as taking and even stealing humanity. And then we're told that he actually profanes the temple. So he's a political agitator, he's a religious disruptor, and he's the leader of a cult. Now Felix's job and primary focus was on keeping the peace in Rome. These are significant accusations. Now I don't know about you guys, but when you're accused falsely, it doesn't strike up inside of you this calm, right? I don't know about you. It doesn't in me. My first reaction when I've been accused falsely about something is not to immediately go, oh, God's got a purpose in this and a plan in this, and I'm all good. I'll get there, but it's probably going to take more than a few minutes. And hopefully it comes really fast so that I don't say something I shouldn't. Right? But listen to what Paul says here. After being told this and the Jews actually agreeing with Tertullus, Tertullus says, By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And when the governor in verse 10 had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied this. He said, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Immediately, Paul addresses, begins to defend the gospel 
And he lands where? On the hope of what? The resurrection. The resurrection, both here, it's speaking of for the just and the unjust. Paul was saying that his hope was in the resurrection to come, in essence, because of what he said here, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I have a hope in the future coming resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of life, eternal life, because Christ is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. And he himself was resurrected, and therefore when he says that he will resurrect us, both the just and the unjust, to bring judgment against the lost and life and glory to the saved. That's our hope. That's our hope. So the resurrection equals the fulfilled and future hope in God. The resurrection is both the fulfilled and future hope in God. It's the fulfilled hope through Christ's resurrection that now death has been defeated for all those who repent and believe on Jesus. And it is the future hope for all those who repent on Jesus because God will raise us in new life eternally with his new creation. What is the very thing that our culture longs for? Extended life, isn't it? I mean, think about this. We should be a healthy people, but think of all the health fads that are out there. I'm amazed at how many people invest their entire lives, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but invest their entire life in seeking to extend their life by what they do, by what they eat, by how they they function. Now, we should eat well. I could do a lot better at it. And I could do a lot better at exercise. But the motivation of that has to be stewarding our bodies, not the extension of life. Because God is the only extender of life. It is through Jesus that we have life eternal. Because these bodies, these tents that God has given us, as Corinthians tells us, are temporary. They're mortal. They're broken. And we can do everything right to these bodies and still be gone today or tomorrow. It is only in Christ that we have life. 2 Corinthians 15, 12-20 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that, de- that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
Because Christ has been raised in the dead, His promise to us is this. His promise is that there will become a day where Christ will return for His people. And what will happen in that raising of the dead where we will all, every single one of us, stand before Christ. Those who have been justified through grace, through faith in Jesus, will experience God's blessing and new life in Him. A new body, glorified. And those who have been unjust, who are not justified by the grace of God, will actually be judged by God in wrath and separated from God in eternity, experiencing death eternally. The hope that the believer has in Jesus is not just that Jesus rose again, but it is that he will raise us again in his glory. That's an awesome thing. It is the eternal fountain of youth. It is the fact that we have life eternal in Jesus. And I think sometimes when we think of the resurrection, Paul always spoke of the resurrection. When we look at the gospel being presented by Jesus, the resurrection was at the center. And I think as followers of Christ, we often put the defense on the death rather than on the resurrection. That Jesus died, he did. And he took our pain, he did. And he was tortured for our sake and persecuted for our sake, and he was. But he rose on the third day, defeating death, defeating the power of that death, promising new life in him now and fulfilled new life in him when he returns. Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's an awesome thing. That's the promise, the resurrection. You see, the early church was not a death and resurrection church. It was a resurrection and return church. It was a people that were seeking and desiring and longing for the resurrection of the saints when Christ returns. It's the part of the gospel that today that our culture longs for, that we should long for as well. John 5, 28 and 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. For the believer, the hope and the future hope is in the resurrection. So, Paul gives his defense centered on this hope in God through the resurrection. So giving a defense for hope in God through the resurrection begins with a clear conscience towards God and people. It begins with a clear conscience 
towards God and people. The very first thing that happens is that God here begins with a clear conscience towards God and people. Notice Paul's defense. He says in verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Now, Brian Bell describes a a conscience as the knowing part of us, that which knows what is right and what is wrong. It warns us of evil, approves of well-doing, and condemns wrongdoing. What Paul's talking about here is it's the idea of being in right relationship with God and man. He, He was committed to repenting and confessing sin to God, walking in righteousness and declaring the truth. That's what Paul was committed to. We see that here in verse 10. When he begins his, his introduction to Felix, notice that Paul does not flatter Felix. It would have been very easy for Paul to try to butter up Felix if his hope was in Felix. This is where a man's way is very different than God's way. Even our tactics, the way that we approach life, begin to change. It shows who and what we have confidence in. Paul says here, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He tells what is true. And then he describes that he's going to give his defense in joy. He doesn't flatter He doesn't embellish. He doesn't deceive. But he keeps a clear conscience before God and men. Then he goes on and he says, You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. Now what you don't hear Paul doing is, These ridiculous men, these jerks, it's all they want from me. What you don't hear from Paul is him cussing them out. He simply states the truth. And he doesn't embellish the truth. He says, go test it. Test it. He doesn't need exaggerated facts to prove his case. He doesn't need embellished facts to prove his innocence. He simply tells the truth. It's an example of Paul keeping a clear conscience before God and men. The other part of keeping a clear conscience before God and men is by being a person who is confessing our sin regularly, repenting of that sin, walking in righteousness, and faithfully declaring His truth. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Matthew 5.23-25 instructs us further. So if you are offering your gift to the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before an altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge the guard and you be put in prison. That means that we're to deal with short accounts quickly. We don't wait for long-term times. We keep ourselves in right relationship with one another and with God. You see, Paul's defense is wrought with this commitment. He starts there. He's a repenting person. And he's a person seeking to maintain right relationship with God and with men. You see, the greatest defense that we have for the Gospel especially when faced with fallen believers, 
is our own life and testimony. One of the things that we have today is that people say, well, I know these Christian leaders that fell. They fell morally. Christianity is a bunch of hypocrisy. And we stand back and we don't know what to do with it. Well, the first thing is, is that we can say, yes, Christianity is made up of people who are sinful, who do, at times, do what they don't want to do, and therefore we are hypocrites at times. But better yet, my life has been transformed by Jesus, and I have walking in power, and so I can't control what that person does, but that does not negate the gospel because it is my life that bears the truth of this testimony. Fallen leaders have no more power in their life than you have. Pastors have no more power in their life than you have. The same spirit in me is the same spirit in you. Ever fallen prey to the idea that if just my pastor prays for me, his prayer is going to be more empowered? Now the Bible does instruct you to come to the elders to pray together. But remember, Caleb praying for you and me praying for you is done in the same spirit. We need to remember that it is our life and testimony in Jesus that bears the truth. And the greatest defense to the gospel is our own life. We can't control what goes on around us, but we can point people to ourselves. Isn't this what Paul does repeatedly in the New Testament when he says, be imitators of me? He's not saying that to be arrogant. He's saying that because he's saying, look at the transformed life that Christ has done in me. Walk in this righteousness. If God can do it to a murderer and to a self-righteous Pharisee, God can bring transformation in anyone's life. The second thing that we see here is that the gospel or giving a defense for the hope that we have in the resurrection exposes a Christian's purpose to serve God, not be antagonistic. It exposes a Christian's purpose to serve God not to be antagonistic. When we give a defense for the gospel, what we're defending is the work of Christ in our life. And it exposes our purpose to serve God, not to be antagonistic. Now what do I mean? Well, Tertullus here says, on behalf of Ananias and the Jews, that Paul is the leader of this cult. By sect, what he's saying here is that it's naturally divisive and disruptive. But Paul responds to this accusation in verse 14 when he says, But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. What he's saying is, no, this isn't something new. This is simply the fulfillment of God's promise. I'm not choosing to lead a sect or a cult. I'm simply seeking to worship God through Christ as the fulfillment of the law. See, Paul was simply practicing his faith, not trying to be a disruptor or an instigator. This is one of the reasons that it's important that we subject ourselves to authorities on matters that are not issues of faith and practice. 
I'll say something that's actually controversial to the church today. And that is that the church is far too involved in matters that are not on faith and practice. We have a place to stand when we come underneath the authority, even if we don't agree with it, if it does not impinge on the core aspects of our faith and practice. I'll say something that's not popular. Masks are not core to our faith and practice. We may not like them, but they should not prevent us from gathering and they should not prevent us from worshiping God together. Shouldn't happen. This last year has exposed things that we are allowing to get in the way of our faith and practice. What we want is for people to see that when things come up that agitate them, it's because of our faith. When we take a stand for righteousness, when we take a stand on things like, yes, there is sin and sexual immorality is wrong and homosexuality is wrong, that there is absolute truth, that these are the things that prick people's hearts, not the things that are based upon faith and practice. Unfortunately, people know us more for what we stand against that have nothing to do with our faith and practice. We're going to have people be against us because God identifies sin as sin. And the gospel and the resurrection deals and confronts that sin in a person's life. The truth of the matter is that when we go before God, what we need to be able to say and when we go before man is that, you know what? I'm sorry that the truth offends your heart. But I'm seeking to serve God. We can't do that with preferences. But when we're known for our preferences rather than for the truth, it's a problem. You see, Paul was practicing his faith. And when we practice our faith as God has called us to do it, then it becomes clear who the agitators are. If the church actually gathered together and said that the gathering was important regardless of whether I had to wear a mask or not, people would believe that the gathering is important. But when I fight the peripherals, the focus becomes on the peripherals, and what people lose sight of is that no, these people aren't simply serving God, they're agitators. Paul chose to say, guess what? I'm just going to serve God. I'm going to serve God. And my position may agitate some people, but it's not because I'm seeking to be an agitator and defending my own rights. It's because I'm seeking to serve God in truth. And so we're told that He takes up the alms and He goes to the temple for the purpose of bringing alms 
You see, the real agitators were those that were prohibiting him from worshiping. The real agitators and disruptors were those that were saying, no, you can't worship. Matthew Henry adds, the true Christianity has a direct tendency to the uniting of the children of men and the gathering of them together in one. And as far as it obtains its just power and influence upon the minds of men, will make them meek and quiet and peaceable and loving and every way easy, acceptable and profitable one to another, and therefore is far from being a sect which is supposed to lead to division and to sow discord. Truth Christianity aims at no worldly benefit or advantage and therefore must by no means be called a sect. We need to be a people who are known as servants of God, not as a defender of our own rights. That's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for me not to look out and go, that's just bunk and bogus. I don't like that. But I look at Paul. What was Paul going through when they were accusing him of being a cancer and a plague? He deemed the gospel and the gospel importance far more important than his own. And he was driven by the resurrection knowing that this life is temporary because there is life eternal in glory with Christ. Well, the third thing here then that we see Paul do in defending the Gospel and the hope of God through the resurrection is that he seeks to appeal to people's consciences by pointing out their need for faith in Christ. He seeks to appeal to people's conscience by pointing out their need for faith in Christ. Paul comes before Felix. And Felix is standing before him. And after hearing his argument in verse 22, we're told that Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Felix hears the argument of Paul and decides to put him off. And then we're told in verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when you go before leaders... You go before high people. I'm not sure that the first thing that you do is proclaim the gospel, right? But that was Paul. Paul got in there and he proclaimed the gospel. We're told that he actually tells him about faith in Christ. But he doesn't just do that. He goes directly at the conscience of Felix and Drusilla. Now Felix, a corrupt ruler, who we know takes bribes, 
What you don't know about Drusilla is Drusilla was married at the age of 14. She was the great-granddaughter of Herod who killed all of the Israel babies looking for Jesus the Messiah. She was the granddaughter of Herod who sent Jesus to the cross. This was a woman who understood Jewish tradition and Jewish law, but who had also come from a corrupt family and herself at the age of 16 decided to leave her husband for Felix after being persuaded by Felix. It's interesting that Paul speaks directly to three things. First, he speaks to righteousness and the need for righteousness in a person's life. Secondly, he calls on the need for self-control. And third, he speaks about the coming judgment. Now, for many of us, it's hard enough just to share the gospel. But now, I'm actually appealing to a person's conscience. I'm actually knowing what's going on in their lives and dealing with those areas. You see, Paul knew that both Felix and Drusilla, they needed righteousness. They knew that their life was not righteous before God. Their lives displayed a complete and utter lack of self-control. And there was a coming judgment that was being spoken of. And the only answer to that was faith in Jesus. That there was no righteousness that could be fallen or, or come about because of their own life. It can only be given through Jesus. And that's the beauty of the gospel, is that it is Jesus' righteousness that we are granted. And then we are granted His power in overcoming sin. But apart from Jesus, I have no power over sin. Apart from Jesus, my self-control is only as good as it is on my own, which stinks. And without Jesus, I will face the judgment of God's wrath. Now we're told here that Felix does something different. He says, Felix was alarmed. That word is probably better translated as Felix trembled. He understood what this meant for his life. And yet, Rather than deal with the truth that was put before him, he tells Paul to go away to the present. Ever been there with God? Where God confronts you of sin in your life and you're like, God, go away. When God confronts you with error as God is leading you to walk in truth and you're like, God, go away. Just get away. Maybe I'll turn the music up a little louder. And it's not going to be on the Christian station because that would be convicting to my heart. Or it might be. We can be there as Christians too. You see, if I'm more enamored with people, their approval and acceptance and the pleasures of this world, it will lead to indifference, fear of man, and worldliness. If I'm more enamored with people, their approval and acceptance and the pleasures of this world, it will lead to indifference, fear of man, and worldliness. Look at Felix. Even after understanding the gospel that Paul had just shared, he sent him away hoping that Paul would give him money. 
Felix was confronted with the truth. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You see, Felix heard the truth. And he even understood it. But he delayed. Dan Duncan points out that Augustine spoke like that when he was a young man. He said, give me chastity, but not yet. He was afraid God would hear him and heal him of his lust, and he didn't want that. He wanted to satisfy his lust, not lose it. How typical is that? We think that the world has more to offer us than Christ. But look at your heart. Think about your thoughts. Who do you give your thoughts to during the day? Jesus Christ or the things of the world? So often our minds are led captive by the allurements of this age and the materialistic things around us. We're in a very wealthy materialistic age and so often we think, whether consciously or not, we think that's what's really important. Felix had the opportunity to repent and he didn't. But Paul appealed to his conscience with the gospel. I'll have to be honest with you guys that there are times that I have shared the gospel and I would say it's a passive attempt. What I mean by that is I throw it out there and it's like one of those sticky spiders that you had when you were a kid and you throw it against the window and it creeps down and you just hope it's going to stick and fall down and crawl down the wall. And usually what happens is they hit for a second, they stick, and they pop off and fall to the floor and they never crawl. I can share with you there have been times where I've just gone and I've said, listen, here's the gospel I hope you get it. Right? We're just so happy it's out there. When in fact, what he's saying is, I will give you the answers when you stand before men, as Luke tells us. We have to trust that God will give us the answers and allow us to appeal to men's conscience, to humanity's conscience through the gospel. It means that I begin to identify those areas in a person's life when I share the gospel and I begin to speak into those things as the gospel. How does faith in Christ heal that? It means that when I look in a culture that's desperate to elongate their life, to have purpose in their life, that when I share the gospel, the resurrection, not simply of Christ, but of the dead, probably should be a part of it and needs to be a part of it. Because that is where our hope is. is it cost, God is redeeming His people. So here's an important takeaway. When God makes His truth known to you, don't delay in responding to Him or your heart will become hardened. When God makes His truth known to you, don't delay in responding to Him or your heart will become hardened. And that hardening process can be rapid or it can be slow. But you will begin to shut out the things of God. Hebrews 4, 6-7 through says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again He appoints a certain day, today, saying that through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Brother and sister, believer in Christ, 
If the Lord is speaking into your heart, if He is convicting your heart, if He is leading your heart, do not delay. But today, respond in obedience. Friend, if you think that you have more time to deal with the spiritual things and to not be right with God, if you think that you're too busy right now to deal with the truth of who Jesus is and your need for salvation, I want to encourage you, today is the day. It is the day that has been offered to you to repent and believe on Jesus for your salvation. We don't want to delay and harden our hearts. It's said that when Aaron Burr, many of you may know, who was an American leader, he's also known for killing Alexander Hamilton. And if you've watched the musical, Aaron Burr has become more popular in recent days. But Aaron Burr was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. And he had been a student at Princeton University. And while he was a student at Princeton, there was a great revival that came across the campus. And he attended a meeting and he felt the need of God's mercy and felt that he should give his heart to Jesus. But he hesitated. And he left without doing it. Outside, when he got outside, the story is told that he looked toward heaven and said, God, if you don't bother me anymore, I'll never bother you. It's said that when, Alexander, excuse me, when Aaron Burr was later in his life, that he told those around him that God has kept his part of that bargain for him and that he's never bothered me. And it's said that Aaron Burr lived without God and died without friends. The truth is this. It's not simply that he died without friends, but he died without redemption. He died without Christ. When Christ speaks to our hearts, do not harden your heart, but rather respond. And may it be our lives that in giving a defense for the gospel, we find our hope in the resurrection that leads us to be right with God and right with man, that, that moves us to be people who are serving God and focused on serving God with a sole purpose, being known for our service unto God, not being known as agitators to our culture. And when we give a defense of the gospel and give a defense of our hope in God through the resurrection, may we appeal to people's conscience. And as we appeal to people's conscience in the gospel, may we respond to the Spirit's leading and may we personally respond in the power of the gospel so as to not harden our hearts. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that we can come before you knowing that you are the defender of of your faith. God, may we be people who defend the gospel in the hope of you through the resurrection, knowing that you have already fulfilled your word through Jesus, through his overwhelming resurrection.
and that you are coming again to redeem your people, resurrecting the dead for either eternal judgment or eternal glory. May it be that all who hears these words today experience and respond in eternal glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen.